When Susan and I were first married, we had the opportunity to serve um, on, a, on, a, on a mission team that went to Guatemala. It was a very remote, uh, very remote uh, region in the mountains where we, where we were doing a number of things, working with kids mainly. But one of the other things that we were doing with the team was we were building um, very, very basic homes. And the work was absolutely backbreaking because of the heat and the conditions. And we were, we were mixing the cement pads uh, by hand uh, for these very simple homes. It was backbreaking labor. So we, we leave uh, and a couple of years later had the opportunity to go back. And some of the, the guys that went back uh, said, listen, we're, there's no way we can do that again. We're going to go into Guatemala City. We are going to buy a gas-powered cement mixer. We are going to give this gas-powered cement mixer to um, the, the locals, and they can hook it up to the back of the pickup trucks, and they will never have to mix cement by hand again. Now, all in favor, the guys are like, yep, and they go into Guatemala City, they buy this thing, and they, they're like, here, may your lives be changed. The price has been paid. Now, our text today is Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul makes a pivotal shift in the letter to say, church, a price has been paid. You never have to live the same way again. And it's incredible. Now, you know what happened in, in, uh, when we went back a couple days later after purchasing that cement mixer was we found the cement mixer sitting there, and then we found the locals mixing concrete by hand next to the cement mixer. Because it was easier, more familiar, actually felt quite normal to do the way they'd always done it. And in Romans chapter 6, this text we're about to open up, the Apostle Paul is challenging the idea that the scandalous saving grace of Jesus would come into our lives, and then we would just spend the rest of our lives, metaphorically, living the way that we always lived, symbolically mixing concrete with our lives and just staying in this, in this condition. It's a huge shift from what God's grace has accomplished for us And in chapter 6, we're going to look at what God's grace accomplishes in us. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body ruled by sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, because the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. And death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So, in the same way, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, making you obey its passions. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him 
as instruments of righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word. So here is this pivotal shift, bringing together what God's grace accomplished for you and what God's grace is accomplishing now in you. And if you kids who have notes there, we'll take a look at the notes that I give you. There's these two words I want to explain, because when you grow up in church, you hear them all the time. And those two words are justification and sanctification. So if you look in your notes, there's some blanks there, okay? So what did God's grace accomplish for you? It accomplished justification. That means it's a one-time act of God's grace that declares that you are righteous because of Jesus. And what is sanctification? Sanctification is an ongoing work. It's an ongoing work of grace, whereby from sheer freedom, we desire to live in the imitation of Jesus. Justification is a one-time act. Sanctification is an ongoing work. And one says that we are righteous because of Jesus. That's justification. And, the, and sanctification says that more and more we're going to desire to imitate Jesus. Okay. So it's important for you kids to get that so that as we continue to, to teach you, you can look down in your notes and, ref, and remember those things. I was in Manitoba one time. I, I'm sure I told this story before, but uh, I just never forget it. It was because it, it was something that just struck me when I was talking about this very thing, about what God's grace has done for us. And this gentleman started moving toward me, and I mean fast. I mean in such a way that I knew he wasn't rushing to say, good job, because it was like a, like a speed-walking Goomba. He just, his face, the way he, I was like, ooh, this is going to be an interesting encounter. And so he comes up, and he says, you can't tell the church that everything is done in Jesus because there will be no motivation for them. You keep talking about everything is finished in Christ's work. And if you talk that way and you preach that way, the church will do nothing. There will be no motivation for good works. There will be no motivation for them to turn from their sin. They're just going to sit in their sin because they're like, well, the preacher says that everything's finished in Jesus, so what motivation is there? Paul is anticipating that exact thing, which is why he makes this shift in Romans 6. Right In verse 1, the word to continue in sin, the word in the Greek is epimeno. And, it's, and it could also be translated to stay in the same place, like to swim in something. How many of you kids have ever been swimming in a pool for so long, your parents are like, you got to get out, it's time to get out, you're pruning, you're a prune, you have to get out and drink some water, you got to get out and get some shade, you can't stay where you are, right? Happens, right? What Paul is saying is, your soul is pruning, guys. You can't stay there. It's, it doesn't make any sense to stay there. And then he moves on in verse 2. After he says you can't stay in the same place, you can't continue in sin, let your soul prune, he, he says, should we do that? And then he says, in the English translation says, by no means. But it's a really interesting word in the Greek that Paul uses. And the reason I'm, I'm, uh, I thought I would just kind of give this to you is because many of you have been in church for a long time. You've read this many times. And every once in a while, the original language, the English is sufficient, by the way, but every once in a while, the original language gives you this beautiful, colorful way of thinking about something. The word by no means in the Greek is genomai, which means, which means to bring into being or to be born. So the Apostle Paul says, should we just swim around in our sin? Well, I hope that idea isn't given birth in the church. I hope that doesn't come into, into being and becomes this weird, ugly, misguided theological baby that you're now nursing. That's terrible. He says, no, I hope that that never happens. That's a misguided understanding of grace. So we're going to unpack this passage this morning by asking three questions. First of all, 
what does it mean to be dead to our sin? Secondly, what will it look like when we consider ourselves dead to our sin? And then thirdly, how do we turn from the lordship of our sin to live in the lordship of our Savior? So here's the first thing. What does it mean to be dead in sin? In verse 2, he uses this phrase, you know, died to sin. It means that sin doesn't own you. It's no longer the dictating force in your heart or your mind that shapes you, that guides you. Right? Though it's true that all of us struggle with sin, all of us will inevitably at some point fall into sin, it is the gospel truth that we are liberated from being slaves to sin. Right? We are liberated from having the meditations of our minds formed by it, the desires of our hearts driven by it, the choices of our lives impulsively, involuntarily dictated by it. Just dead to it. When you look at verses 3 to 5, it says that the, the reason that there is this death of this dictatorship is because of Christ's union with it. That Us, that being united to Christ by grace, it's having a profound impact. Paul uses the phrase, baptized into death. In other words, whatever was true of Jesus is now legally and spiritually true of you. Jesus was righteous by nature, and now it's true of you that before God you are declared righteous by grace. Jesus rose from the grave and sin had no dominion over him, so it is true of you, united to Christ, that sin does not have dominion over you. And so, in verse 4, we see this inevitable you know, trajectory of the goal of God's grace, which is newness of life. If you look at verse 4, it talks about walking in newness of life. You know, one of the guys who was like a mega great grace preacher in the, during the time of the Reformation was Martin Luther, of course, right? This doctrine of justification by faith, it just changed his life. It was a driving force in the, in the uh, Reformation, this idea that Christ was enough. And, and some people accused him of saying, well, now you're just saying the church can do whatever they want. And so in 1521, he wrote a treatise called uh, Of Love and Good Works, where Martin Luther was responding to the antinomian charge, antinomian is a term that means lawless, and they're saying Martin Luther is lawless. And in the book he said, and in the treatise, 1521 treatise, he said, you cannot grant the premise of grace and deny its conclusion. You can't grant that you've been scandalously saved by grace and then immediately deny that the conclusion of that, that God's goal of that, is, to, is that that grace would liberate you from your sin. Not that, of course, the Christian doesn't sin, but that we're not slaves to it. We don't have to do it. And so, this is what um, verse 4 gives us. And then when you look at verse 5, you find that there's a certainty that Paul is talking about. And he's, he's giving us the sense of certainty about, not being, uh, about, being, uh, about being dead to sin by saying it's as certain as Christ's resurrection. So that's giving us a certainty of an, of an increasing congruence, right? We talk about this a lot at Redeemer where really the Christian life is an increasing congruence so that the things that God wants, we want. So that when the word of God, you open it and you read it and you meditate upon it, and it says to you, live like this, what your heart is saying as it's reading is, I want this. It's an increasing congruence, precisely because we're dead to sin. Uh, I don't know if there's any kids in here, let's say 13 or under, raise your hand if you kids like coffee. Are there any coffee drinkers? Okay, there's a couple, a couple of hands went up. All right. Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, we've got a couple very young coffee drinkers in here. I hope you love it because you're going to be that tall for the rest of your life. Look at me. I started drinking coffee very young. 
And now I'm 5'9". I have to brush my hair up to be... Okay, so... Uh, the thing with coffee is you have to develop a taste for it. Most children, except for the super mature ones that just raised their hands, most children do not like coffee. Most, many adults don't like coffee because it, there's a, it requires a developed... Uh, it de- requires a developed taste. And so the guidance of God's word is such that it's like developing a taste for something that we enjoy in its full richness. You know, mo- most kids are, are like, well, I don't actually like coffee. I like cups that are three quarters full of milk and sugar um, with a little dab of uh, a little brown dot that slightly colors the water. If that's what you're drinking, you don't actually like coffee. And so what, is, what it means to be dead to our sin is to not simply go through life with the Bible in your lap or in your home as you're sitting around your dinner, dinner table and trying to muscle something down that you fundamentally don't want. You see, the, the union of Christ and being baptized into his death means that you're dead to your old palate and by the Holy Spirit you've been given a new one where increasingly and continually you are going to, you are going to actually very much desire this newness of life that verse 4 is talking about, right? Raised to this newness of life. When you think about what the newness of life looks like, you can go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 where Paul lays out what the, what the fruit, the outworking of the Spirit looks like, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we just pick one, patience. That describes you sometimes, that doesn't describe you all the time. All nine of those fruit growing together describe us sometimes. They don't describe us all, all of the time. But, and so though it's true that none of us walk in perfect love or wisdom or humility today, united to Christ, we're free by God's grace and dead to sin so that we can choose day after day to do and, uh, what is love and wise and humble. Precisely because... Just as sure as Christ's resurrection is real, our, our debt being dead to sin, no longer being slaves to sin is real. In verses 8 to 9, Paul goes to great lengths to emphasize the emphasis, uh, or to emphasize, sorry, the implications of our union with Christ by saying Christ cannot die again and, and death has no, no hold or no claim on him. And so we're encouraged to walk in this newness of life. And Paul's not just talking about newness of life in a future eschatological sense. You know, don't worry, don't worry, church, you've got to muscle through this, you know, being driven around by your sin, by your nose. But one day, in the resurrection, everything will be fine. That's not how Paul's talking about it. He's actually talking about the new life in the day-to-day in a very experiential way. When you look at verse 12, he says, don't let sin reign. And, and, and that word reign is the same word that they used to describe Christ's reign, right? In the, in the Greek, the word is, is kurios. So you would say, kurios, or Christos kurios, Christ is Lord, kurios. So Paul says, don't let sin kurios you, right? It's like, you've got, there's only going to be one Lord in your life, which one will it be? And by God's grace, you're now dead to this Lord. And so, even though it's true that there's some sin that can fall away quickly in our lives, there's some sin that we struggle with uh, for, long, uh, for, for months or for years, there's some sin that we even fight against uh, for a lifetime. But what we're being reminded of is that, is that sin is not our Lord. That's what this passage is establishing, right? It's establishing that, hey, even though I've been traveling on this road 
too long. The old me is dead and gone. That's what he says. It's right there. And so what is it exactly that died? We say we're dead to sin. What died? Our way of relating to God, our old way of relating to God died. Our old way of relating to others died. The gospel has changed everything. So you see now, sin might lead you to disobey God. But now sin is actually a contrary. It's actually contrary to your deepest understanding of who you are in relation to God. See, every time we sin in that moment, we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten whose we are. We've forgotten what we've been given. We've, been forgot, we've forgotten where, where we're headed. Right? It, 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 we now relate to God in a, in a completely new way. How many of you remember that your parents would say things to you like, not in this family. You would point somewhere else at something that somebody else was allowed to do or doing, and then, and then it, the response was like, well, not in this family. Right? So it would, it would be like, uh, for example, uh, you, know, somebody's, uh, you repeat a crude joke. You repeat something that's sexist. You repeat something that objectifies the other set. The other sex. Your parents are like, not in this family. Right? They, you see somebody relate to something in a racist uh, way or with, a, with an air of superiority. Oh, well, we're more superior than they are because this is our ethnicity and that's theirs. This is the tax bracket we operate in and that's the tax bracket they live in. We're better than they are. Oh, well, you see, these are the degrees and the letters that we have after our names they don't have letters after their name. And so it's, it doesn't matter, you know, this is the way that uh, the, the culture responds to this ethic. And they're discipled by the culture. But we're, and the response is kind of like, well, not in this family. I don't care if all your friends are doing that. Not in this family. You know, your parents have done that. It's like the Apostle Paul is saying to us in chapter 6, you know, sin might rule and reign and, drive, and, and was drive, the driving force in your heart and your life. But not in this family. Not anymore. Before being united to Christ by his scandalous grace, maybe you thought that everything you thought and all of the impulses in your heart was, were, were right simply because you thought them and felt them. But not in this family. In this family, we desire what God, what God wants and the wise guidance of his word. Right? Not in this family. We've all had parents that are like that. You're, all your friends might cheer for the Dallas Cowboys, but not in this family. You raise your kids right. Your mama don't let your... Baby, grow up to cheer for the cowboys, right? So you, not in this family. That's what Paul's doing here. Before you were a child of God, when you sinned, it was congruent with your identity. But now, when we sin, it is actually incongruent, right? And so think about what area you struggle with continually. Maybe it's in your heart. Maybe it's in your mind. Maybe it's, it's a, a dark, unevangelized piece of your way of relating to people or things that you feel like you're a slave to it. The good news of the gospel is you were not a slave to it. And the goal of God's grace for you was not just your rescue, but your renewal. And even though it's true that you may continually struggle with and, 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 and grapple with that sin, the truth of the matter is, and what Paul is explicitly saying, is even though you struggle with it, or you fall into it, you are not defined by it, and you are not helpless to resist it. Which leads to the second thing. What will it look like when we consider ourselves dead to sin? Because that's what he says in verse 11. First he says we're dead to it, but then he doesn't just move on. Hey, you're dead to it, chapter 7. He says you're dead to it, but you actually need to consider yourselves dead to it. So what does that look like? I'm going to use a 
a parable to explain, a modern day parable to explain this. When I was growing up, we had a washing machine that died. And when the washing machine died, we got a new washing machine. And my stepdad took the, the old broken washing machine up the stairs to the living room and then his back went out. And so, you know, he was laid out because he hurt himself. And that washing machine sat there for an insane amount of time. So much time, I shudder to, I shudder to give a, a timeline to it. Because it was a terrifying amount of time. Not a week. Not a month. I don't actually know how long it was there, but I'll say this, and this is not an exaggeration. That washing machine was in our living room for so long that I have a vivid memory of it being decorated with Christmas decorations at Christmas time. And you know, it was there for so long, it just became a permanent fixture in the living room. And I just kind of related to it like it was supposed to be there. You put your keys on it, it was pretty handy. Put your books on there, your nap, lunch, grab it and go out the front door, washing machine in the living room. And then one day, you know, I, I, I was like, why, am, why is this here? Why is this still here? Why are we living like this? Why have I grown accustomed to this? Why have I accepted this, stopped questioning this? Why am I not rejecting this? Why is nobody seeking to remove this? This is not right. This should not be here. A washing machine should not be here. And so I opened the front door, and I wasn't strong enough to carry the washing machine out by myself, so I flipped it on its side, I pushed it along the carpet, I got it to the front porch, and then I just started flipping it end over end down the stairs. Bam! Pow! Smash! Bam! And then it got on the concrete, and then we had, one of, we had those, you know, uh, those stones around the garden that were like this, and so it got jammed. So I just had to keep flipping it over and over, and I just flipped it all the way to the curb. Bang! Crash! Smash! Bam! Oh, good! It's out of the house! And I went in. My family's laughing, and my mom's like, you can't leave it out there because there's a door on it. It's illegal. You have to, the doors can't be on. A little child could go. So I go back out, and I start, and I break the door off and throw the thing in. Considering yourself dead to sin and living like you're dead to sin, it looks like hating it. It looks like hating when you do it, Repenting when you fall into it, fighting against it, refusing to normalize it, refusing to justify it, refusing to live with it, and kicking it to the curb. And you have to kick your sin to the curb every morning. I do. But the good news of the gospel is God's grace has daily pickup. But that's what looking... To, it doesn't look like a life of no sin. Some of you may have come out of a context where... Perhaps your understanding of this was like, consider yourselves dead to sin, so therefore sin should somehow be gone. No, it's never going to be gone. Maybe you're here and you're exploring Christian faith, and you're like, this is my problem with Christianity. Like, there's so many hypocrites. You know, there's just, oh my goodness. They're like, hey, love your neighbor, but they're not loving. There's so many hypocrites. Hey, listen, welcome to Redeemer, and come on in. There's room for one more hypocrite. You're welcome to be here. All of us, none of us, are, are, are living sinless lives, but to be dead to our sin... Yes, to not just normalize it and decorate it and make it a part of our life. We're like, no, I'm not. I refuse to let this define me and I refuse, refuse this. And God's grace takes our sin every day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. It is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Lamentations 3. He is good and faithful. And so, 
When we consider ourselves dead to sin, it looks like turning to God to avail ourselves of the strength that he provides, the clarity of mind that he provides, the recalibration of the soul that his grace provides, so that our past sinful patterns of relating and acting, they don't continue to drive us. If, you, uh, if some of you may have, um, take philosophy in school, Aristotle is a virtue ethics philosopher. When you read Nicomachean Ethics, I've talked about this many times before, it, really the driving force behind a lot of his writings is you do in order to become. Okay, that's logical. It makes sense. If you want to be a kind person, then you do kind things to be, become that kind of a person. What Paul is doing here is it's not simply virtue ethics. He's not simply saying, if you will do righteous things, then you'll be righteous. Right? You look down at your notes, kids, and you remember you're already righteous because of a thing called justification. So what Paul is doing is it's not virtue ethics, do in order to be. What he's actually saying is you're dead to sin. You and I ought to be doing these things because we've been scandalously freed. And this is actually congruent. So to live a loving life and to do a loving life is not to somehow attract heaven's attention or try and attract heaven's blessing. It's actually from freedom because we know that we already have that and our lives are in the very hands of God. It would, uh, so let's move on to the third thing here. Um, because sin doesn't rule you. Sin cannot rule you. Sin is not lord over you. But sin is constantly w- waging war with you. And so how do we turn from the lordship of, of our sin to live in the lordship of our Savior? How do we do that? Paul gives it to us in verse 13. He says, you're, you're dead to sin, fact. You have to, relate to sin. you have to relate to it like you're dead. You have to consider yourself dead to sin, which means you can't just normalize it and decorate it. And then in verse 13, he says, you've got to turn from it. How do you turn from it? Because it's not your Lord. You've got to turn your heart and your mind off. of. You've got to turn autopilot off. That's verse 13. We're going to look at that. You know, I just was at a, uh, at a, uh, a presbytery meeting out east. The flight was so terrible. They had to reroute, and we emergency landed in Sydney, Nova Scotia. It was crazy. Those motion sickness, bag, motion sickness bags were being used on that flight all around me. And I had to use mine. And I was like, I can't do this. is terrible. So I got up, started walking towards the washerman. Crazy turbulence. And the flight attendants are like, sir, sir, sir. And I'm like, nope. I'm like, all three of you have to tackle me because this is not going to be good. It was terrible. And then when they, after the whole ordeal was over, the pilot got on the, on, the, uh, on the comms, and it was my brother-in-law. I was like, oh my goodness, my brother-in-law is flying this plane. So I, te- so I texted him. I said, hey, thanks for saving our lives. Sorry about your washroom. And uh, he... Uh, <laughs> And when all, of the, all, when all of the folks got off the plane, and it was just him and I, he said, in all my years of flying, that's the worst turbulence I, I, I've ever been in. I didn't, want to, I didn't even want to go back up there. And, and uh, what he had to do was take the plane off of autopilot. And not just like, well, I know the storm is crazy and insane, and I know that the flight plan says we're going to Halifax. I guess we're going to Halifax. He took it off autopilot, and he had to make all sorts of alternate decisions in the middle of a ridiculous storm to choose something else. What Paul gives us in verse 13 is, he says, 
He instructs us in two ways. Kids, if you look at your notes, the two ways are there. You have to offer, offer yourself to God and then offer every part of yourself to the ways of God. Right? Take, take, taking your life off autopilot. Grace has already forgiven your sin. Grace has already freed you from sin. So now by that same grace, we, we have to come off of autopilot. We have to offer ourselves. Paul describes our lives as being instruments that are in the hands of one of two lords, right? Either the Lord of, you know, uh, life eroding sin or the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us from our sin. So we offer ourselves. What, is that, what does that offering look like? It, you know, the text says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we might walk in newness of life, it means that we have to avail ourselves of the things that God has given. Prayer. As you, re- as you read through the book of Romans in the whole New Testament, the same things keep coming up. In different ways, to different churches, dealing with different things. We're reading, we're reading about Rome, but as you read through the letter to Rome, the same things are going to come up. What has God given? He's given prayer. He's given the meditation of scripture. He's given the, this corporate gathering. He's commanded that every seven days we stop so that we can come, leave all of our work, rest, have our souls recalibrated. He's given us the community of faith. And in all the New Testament letters, these, these gifts, these spiritual disciplines that are gifts, they're given so that that's the means by which we offer our hearts and our minds and our souls. This is how, how uh, what, this is what God has given. The spiritual disciplines of offering yourself to God, offering, that, that's what every part of your, some of your translations say, offer every member. It means like every part of your body, your spirit, your soul, your mind, everything. Right? How do you do that? This, these spiritual disciplines of, of, are, are like the gymnasium of the soul. They're formative, right? When you think about uh, if you've got uh, little, little kids in your life, maybe not your kids, maybe nieces or nephews or uh, friends, and you go and, you, and they're like, hey, come watch my kid's hockey game or come watch my kid's thing. And you're like, you look at these little kids on the ice and, and, and they're moving around and they, they look like it's like, this is incredible. They're so little. They look like they can barely walk and move, but here they are playing hockey. Why? Because right from the beginning, right, the hockey gods are like, we must be formative. We got to be formative. Oh, you can stand on your own two feet? Time to put skates on. It's, that's, how, that's how it is in Canada, right? Because it's formative. And so the, the spiritual disciplines that God has given us, they're formative. Why? So that there's greater enjoyment. Do you know if I, if, if I was to go and play pickup hockey with the guys here, do you know how much fun I would have? Take a guess, because the answer is zero. And the reason is not because I fundamentally hate hockey. It's because I can't skate. It's because I never took the discipline of learning how to skate. And so because there has been no discipline in my life, there is no enjoyment for hockey. Because there is a tremendous correlation between enjoyment that flows out of discipline. So what the Apostle Paul gives is, hey, if you're going to live free from the lordship of the sin of your past, then in the same way that you would go through the discipline of learning something so that you can actually enjoy it, because anything worth enjoying in life requires discipline. And so what Paul is giving here is that to offer ourselves from God, it's like the gymnasium of the soul. It's formative. Christ has won our freedom and he saved our souls, and he did it without our participation. And so we enjoy freedom in the soul by being invited to offer ourselves in participation through the things that God ha- has, uh, has given. And so 
when we get to verse 14, there's an interesting shift in the language. He says, sin is not your master, and you'd expect him to say, so you're not under sin. But he says, sin is not your master, so you're not under the law. Why would he say that? And here's where we conclude. He says, he says sin is not your master and you're not under the law because turning from the lordship of sin and enjoying freedom in the lordship of Christ is going to require a life of prayer and meditation and worship. And so you need to remember that you don't relate to prayer and meditation and worship like you're under the law. You relate to it like you're under grace. In other words, prayer and scripture meditation and worship are not the basis for God accepting you and saving you. They are the means that God has given to nourish you, to strengthen you, to liberate you, to get his mind-renewing, soul-reviving grace to you so that you can enjoy the freedom that is life as a child of God, as a child of grace. We were buried with Christ through our baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too have been raised to walk in newness of life.